want to do today, as I said before, is I want to focus on uh, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in this 26th verse, what we have is, uh, again, a passage that's very familiar uh, to us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. What I want to focus on here particularly is on that little phrase, till he come. What we're seeing and what I want to emphasize here this morning is that in the Lord's Supper, we not only have the opportunity to look back upon the great work that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf in dying on the cross. You remember we've said this before, that our Lord Jesus Christ chosen specifically to be remembered by way of his death. That was his design. That was his intention. His intention, while we remember his teaching, while we remember his miracles, while we remember so many things about our Lord Jesus Christ, he gave us this ordinance in order that we might remember him in his death. Is his death precious to you? Is his, is, is his death that which is dear to you? Is his death that which, again, you understand is the most vital thing that has happened on your behalf? I hope that it is. We think, again, of what it is to, to lay down a life for someone who, uh, who, who we love. And our Lord Jesus Christ lays down his life for his sheep. And so, again, I hope and I pray that every time we come to the table of the Lord, we're always thinking back with, with, with warm hearts, affectionate hearts, on the, on the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. But what I, want to, what I want you also to see from our passage here in the 26th verse is that our Lord Jesus Christ designed something by way of not only of a backward look on his death, but a forward look on his return. And there is everything by way of the pledge that our Lord Jesus gave to us in this ordinance. How do you know that Jesus loved you enough to die for you? I want you to understand this about the nature of the ordinances. He gives you this ordinance so that you might see by way of sign and symbol Jesus' undying love for you. But he also gives you this ordinance that you might see and understand that he's returning for his church. That there's coming a day when this Lord's Supper shall be culminated. It shall consummate in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. In a sense, we can say this. How do you know that Jesus loved you? We can say, hear the word preached and look at the table. How do you know that our Lord Jesus is returning? Hear the word preached and look at the table. And so what I want to do is I want to open this up to you. And what I want to do is I want to summarize this as I often do under a, a primary principle or a doctrine. And it would be the following. That in the Lord's Supper, we are called to look back on his death and to look forward to his return. We can say it this way. We are to look back in remembrance and we are to look forward in expectation. Is that what the Lord's Supper brings to your, brings to your mind? Do you think about the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ when you break this bread? And so this is what I hope to open up to you here today. As I said before, we're going to take a look at this, uh, at this concept, at this theme. We're going to develop it in the three points. It's not going to be so much as we normally do uh, an exposition of a, one particular verse. We're going to engage a number of verses. And like I said, we're going to use this outline to bring everything together. Uh, the explicit verse that reminds us of our Lord's return. The foundational verses that speak to us of our Lord, that our Lord spoke uh, concerning his coming again. And then the culminating passage, which we'll see in uh, Revelation chapter 19. Well, the first thing I want you to consider with me then is this verse that we're looking at here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For as often as ye eat this bread, I'm, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. 
It's very interesting that this word that the Apostle Paul uses to show forth the Lord's death, some of your newer translations rightly would probably say, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he come. It's kind of interesting that when you, when you look at the word that the Apostle Paul uses, he uses, um, he uses this very same word in many situations uh, where he is actually preaching. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul using this word to show forth here in 1 Corinthians. When Colossians, he uses it this way. He says, he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word here that Paul uses for preach is the word that Paul uses to show forth in 1 Corinthians. Uh, now again, your your newer translations would be picking up on this uh, on this nuance on, of the word, but I'm I'm developing this for a reason. I'll get to that here shortly. The other thing I want you to see is that in other passages of scripture, particularly in the book of Acts, which concerns so much about the preaching of the early church, we see this word that Paul uses again in First Corinthians eleven to you uh, and uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, uses it for the very activity of preaching. In Acts chapter 13, verse 5, And when they were at Salamis, they preached, there's that word again, they preached the word of God in the synagogues. Uh, verse uh, 38 of uh, chapter 13. Be it known, and, and here we have uh, the, the, the actual preaching itself. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, listen to this, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. So here's that same word that the King James translator, translators use as show forth in 1 Corinthians 11 is in other places translated as to preach. One more passage of scripture. Acts chapter 17, verse 3. Again, the, the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ. And so this word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11, the King James translators say, uh, again, to show forth. And, and we might ask ourselves the question, boy, is this just another one of those cases where the King James, you know, uh, is, is some, somewhat archaic and we should move on from that? I'm not necessarily making a case for the King James here, although you know that I use it and I prefer it, but I'm not necessarily making that kind of a case here. I want you to, I want you to think along with me, though. Something that I think is very significant when we combine what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with what the nature of an ordinance is. You've heard me say this before about the nature of an ordinance. Again, some refer to it as a sacrament. I prefer the word ordinance. I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have anything against the word sacrament, but I, I do prefer the word ordinance. Uh, I believe that we should stick with the word as it being that Christ has ordained uh, this, uh, this ritual, this rite that we engage in. But when the King James translators speak about the, uh, the, the showing forth, there is a sense that in the ordinance... You've heard me say this before, that in the ordinance, we have visibly presented to our eyes what is audibly presented to our ears in preaching. And so the promises of the gospel that are given to our ears in proclamation, those promises are pictured for us visibly in the ordinance. And so Christ, by way of his being the bread of life, nourishing our souls, Christ, by way of his blood being shed for us, saving us from our sins. These things are pictured visibly for us in the ordinance. And I think, therefore, it's not without reason that when the King James translators, and this isn't a sermon about the King James translators, but when the King James translators say, you do show forth, I think there's something of significance there. 
That's what we're doing in the table. We're showing forth the Lord Jesus Christ. We're showing forth his death on our behalf. We're showing forth the fact that his body being broken and his blood being shed brings to our remembrance everything that Jesus said. If you go back, and we're going to get there shortly, you don't have to go there now, but if you go back to Luke chapter 22, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. And so in the ordinance, that's shown forth. So you see these, these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are. This is why the old writers used to, used to refer to the ordinance, the ordinances, they would say the sacraments. That's, this is why they would refer to them as visible words. What is an ordinance? What is a sacrament? It's a visible word. What does that mean? It means everything that's promised in preaching is now pictured in the ordinance. Do you see the Lord Jesus Christ dying for you? Do you see the Lord Jesus Christ giving himself for you? I think of that passage of scripture in Psalm 40 that comes up so many times in the New Testament. Uh, sacrifice and offering, not what is not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ given a body? That he might give it in a sacrificial death. And so what we see here in this ordinance is not only a looking back, but also a glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first point, as I said before, this is the explicit passage that tells us that we set forth or we proclaim or we declare openly once again, not only the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, but his return as well. Well, we might ask ourselves the question, how is the Lord Jesus Christ set forth in the ordinance? How is the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed in the ordinance? I think we can use both of these expressions. How is he set forth? How is he, how is he proclaimed? Well, he's proclaimed as the, as the true Passover, is he not? And the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And there's a sense in which we can say this, as the Passover itself culminated in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, so the Lord's Supper will culminate, I believe, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. As the Passover had a forward look to it as well as a backward look, so the Lord's Supper has a forward look as well as a backward look as well. And there will come a time of consummation that's, that all surrounds the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how is the death of Christ proclaimed in the Lord's Supper? It's by seeing Christ as our true Passover. This is why you know the famous passage. This is why John the Baptist looks at the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We'll come to the book of Revelation here shortly. I believe it's over 20 times that the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as a lamb in the book of Revelation. Yes, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he's the mighty conqueror, but he's presented over and over again as a lamb. Oh, this lamb who loved you and gave himself for you. This lamb who makes great promises for your future. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper as the true Passover lamb. Now, it's very interesting that when we come to these ordinances, uh, that uh, what we should always see and understand and we should never lose sight of is that the ordinance itself is always to be accompanied by the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word is that which is never to be, uh, or, the, or I'm sorry, the ordinance is never to be uh, brought uh, 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 forth without preaching. Uh, the ordinance is not just something that we uh, get together and distribute the elements and, and, have, and, and have no reference to proclamation. No, the preaching of the word is always to be present in the, in the, very, uh, in the, in the very ordinance itself. And what we see here is, again, what we're doing is we're taking that which is, that which is common and that which, uh, and that which is you know, bread and wine. Again, what is bread and wine? Well, uh, apart from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, they're, they're just that. They're, they're, they're bread and wine. 
But let the promise of Christ be attached to it. Oh, something different now, you see. Now again, we have that which, again, pictures for us and brings to our remembrance not only a dying Savior, but a returning and conquering Lord. And so in this way, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ is presented in the, uh, in the ordinance. Now again, the bread, what does it speak to us of? It speaks to us, it speaks to us, it's, I'm sorry, it speaks to us of his body. We've already mentioned this in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it unto them saying, you see, here's the proclamation. In the sense, Jesus is teaching and preaching. He is now taking that, which is again, even though it's connected with the Passover meal, it's bread and it's, and it's wine. And what does he do now? By way of his proclamation, he invests it with everything by way of the picture of gospel promises. This is my body, which is given for you. You see, when, I, when you partake of the Lord's Supper this, uh, the, uh, today, I want you to see that. I want you to understand that. That this represents, this symbolizes for us that undying, that, that dying love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, also uh, the cup. Uh, likewise, also the cup after saying, uh, after supper, saying, "This is the cup in the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. A body which is given, and blood which is shed." Very clearly, uh, very, very clearly uh, made known to us in the ordinance of the Lord's supper. So as I said before, here we see the explicit passage of Scripture uh, that speaks to us concerning uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only looking back, but also calling us now to look forward. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this blood, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Well, you see, this shows us the, the time frame, we might say, of, of how long we shall be celebrating uh, or observing the Lord's Supper. I want you to think today when you come around the table, I want you to think that this is something that the church of Jesus Christ has been doing for, for now 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years. I want you to identify with that great body of believers uh, throughout the ages and seeing in these symbols again Christ's love for you. Christ promised to come again. Every time the Lord's Supper is, is partaken of, it has again the backwards look, but the future look as well. And I want you to have that in your mind when you come to the table today. And so here we see, as I said before, this great fact that not only does the Lord's Supper look back, it looks forward as well. Sometimes uh, our writers and commentators have, have spoken about the fact that when you look at the Lord's Supper, what you see is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is setting forth at least two things, at least two things. We might do better to say certainly at least three things. Others have spoken of even more than this. But let me give you the two primary things, and I'll introduce a third point as well. The, the twin foci of the, of the Lord's Supper, as I said before, it's, it's remembering his death, but looking forward to his return. And there is a sense in which we default to, we, 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 we find, I don't want to say comfort, but we, 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 we're, we, we expectantly move to looking back on his death. Fair enough, we must do that. You know how many times we've, we've tried to engage your thinking that we don't come to the table of the Lord in an unreflective manner. You know how many times we've made the case that we need to, even, even though we open up for, for our time of welcoming one another before we come to the table, that's going to introduce us to another idea that's common to the Lord's table. 
And that's our fellowship. And even though we do that, there, there's always a, a, a need now to, to stop now and to, and, to, and to refocus our thoughts because we don't want to come to the table with this type of levity or this kind of lightness of mind or this kind of, uh, you know, oh, isn't it nice to see brother and sister so-and-so? No, we need to focus on, on, on the table of the Lord. We need to focus on our Lord Jesus Christ dying. We need to remember him. You see, we need to bring into the present everything that Christ has done for us in the past. But the second focus of the, of the Lord's Supper is future, always. Let me give you the passages of Scripture for that. And again, yeah, you, you could turn to these if you want, but I'm going to read them here quickly. You might want to at least write them down. Everyone, uh, other than John, every one of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have the institution of the Lord's Supper with words that direct our attention not merely backwards, but to the future. And this is significant. And the reason why it's significant is this. is because how do you and I know that the things that Christ has promised will come to pass will indeed come to pass? There are many, there are many opponents to the purposes of God in our day. They don't necessarily, some of them say that they're opponents to the, to the things of God. Some of them don't know that they're opponents to the things of God. But do you know that every system, whether political or religious, that tries to incorporate some idea of what a perfect world should be, militates against the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the kingdoms of this, of the, of this world shall, uh, shall be the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ. Do you know that every political system or religious system that tries to set up some kind of, some kind of perfect society on the earth is working against, counter to the purposes of God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You may have heard me say this before. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is and who will be the greatest political reality that this world has ever seen. Political systems come and go. Monarchies have come. Dictatorships have come. Democracies have come and gone. Oligarchies have come and gone. Uh, all other kind of uh, political systems have come and gone. The ultimate political reality in this world will be the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know? Well, that's what you religious people think about. I would say this to you, my friends. Jesus Christ pledged that in this table. Just like he pledged to you proof of his dying love, he pledges to you proof of his coming victory. And that's what we're looking at here. That's the second focus of the Lord's table. The reality that Jesus Christ will indeed come to rule and to reign over this earth. Look at Psalm 2. It's a beautiful psalm. It speaks about, again, the glory of the king. God setting his own king upon his holy hill. The, the nations uh, taking counsel together. The nations, again, conspiring against. But none of it, nothing, it all comes to naught. Why? Because God's purposes will indeed come to pass. How do you know? He pledged it to you. That's what that means. And when you come to the table of the Lord, you're making, yes, a, and I almost have to say it this way, you're making, yes, a religious statement. You're making, yes, a, a personal statement. But do you know this? You're making a political statement? Not, 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 don't get me wrong. Not, I don't want to lower this, this whole sermon to, to, the, to, to the issues of politics. But the earthly reign of Jesus Christ, oh, it's as political as you might get. And how do you know this happens? You see, he pledges this in the table. Had a, 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 
uh, a friend, Elizabeth and I had a friend uh, whose mom passed away uh, yesterday, and I and I and I wrote uh, to to this uh, friend uh, a little text this morning, and uh, I used we used to attend church together, so I know that today they 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 observe the Lord's Supper, and I said to my friend, I says when you partake of the Lord's Supper, understand and realize that that's Jesus Christ's pledge to you that one day you will once again be with your mother and father around the marriage supper of the Lord. How do you know Christ pledged it? That's what these symbols mean. It's the pledge. We look for these authenticating stamps on our official documents. That's the table of the Lord, you see. It's an authenticating stamp of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that Christ will be victorious? Well, again, let me say this. Do you know that he rose from the dead? You may say, I most certainly do. Well, with that same certainty, you say, the Lord Jesus Christ will again come to rule in glory. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, we will find the consummation of this table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so these great forward looks, listen to, the, listen to these passages now in light of all this. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it for this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it with you new in the kingdom of my Father. Mark 14 verses 20, 22 and 25 the same idea. Verily I say unto you, I will drink it no. I will drink no more the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Luke twenty four verses fourteen through twenty verse twenty. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Here, our Lord Jesus Christ is purposely investing the ordinance with a future look. Yes, we look back. It warms our hearts. It strengthens our souls to know and understand. There was, there was this Savior who loved me unto death, but loves me through death. And how do I know that? Well, he rose again from the dead. And when we come to the table, this is what we're, this is the, these are the very things we're aware of. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not, did not die a, a death a, 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 as a mere victim. He did not die a death that defeated him. He died a death that defeated death. And he rose again the third day. And he will have victory over all of his enemies. How do we know this? The Lord Jesus Christ pledged this to us in the table, you see. And so these ideas, it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm not in any way an authority on these matters, but one commentator makes a very, a very uh, interesting observation uh, by, way of the, uh, by way of our Lord refraining or abstaining from the cup. Some of you probably have more familiarity with, well, with this than, than I do. But one commentator says this, Jesus partook of the cup of blessing at that Passover feast, but he did not partake of the cup of consummation. And, the cup, and this commentator goes on to say that the cup of consummation will be engaged in in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, I defer to this man in this regard. And I think the thought is wonderful. This feast shall be consummated in heaven. This, this Lord's Supper shall be consummated in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that brings us to what I would call, again, the, the consummating passage. 
And that's found in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and I'll turn there. You can turn there if you want because we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Revelation chapter 19. Now, one of the things I want you to be aware of is that, again, commentators, they view this passage of Scripture in somewhat different lights. Many do see what we're going to speak about here in the same light that I'm presenting it to you. Others would see it a little differently. Uh, they would see some, some nuance in the passage. Uh, but I want you to see something here that I, that I think that we can bring together with the idea of the Lord's Supper, that there will be a culmination of this blessed feast of the Lord's Supper in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, whenever we speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, one of the things you have to understand is that that is a very, very big element of prophetic scripture. And there's much that could be said by way of the marriage supper of the Lamb in and of itself. And what I'm doing here is I'm drawing together a connection between the Lord's Supper and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And in one sense, you could teach on the Marriage Supper of the Lamb and only have the Lord's Supper as something of a subordinate point. I I realize that. I understand that. But I do think that there is a connection that we can make here. And the first thing I want you to see about this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 19 is that this passage of Scripture is all about the victory of God in Christ. As a matter of fact, this passage of Scripture will remind us of the things that we spoke about last week a little bit. Remember last week we spoke about the awful reality of an an eternal hell? Remember there we were in Mark chapter 9 and there was our Lord Jesus Christ again saying, speaking about the place where the worm dies not, neither is the fire quenched. Again in the King James he says this three times. He's speaking about the awful reality of an eternal hell. And one of the things that you might remember that I said is that for many people the the concept of an eternal hell is almost an unbearable thought. For for many people they they react against this and they, they appeal to elements of the nature of God himself. And they say, how can a God, it just wouldn't be consistent with a God who is a God of love to allow for eternal punishment to take place upon sins that were just committed temporally in this life. But I want you to see how that the scripture over and over again never, never views the awful reality of an eternal hell as a blemish on the moral character of God. It never does that. But rather, it presents God's judgment on sin, God's unending judgment on sin as something that is worshipped, something for which God is a worship, and he's even adored. Listen to the passage of Scripture here, Revelation 19. And after these things, I heard a voice of much people and saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Now, what are after these things? It's the judgment on Babylon. It's the judgment on the wicked. Listen as as we go on. uh, Verse uh, verse 2 of of, of chapter 19. For true and righteous are his judgments. It's not not that his judgments are, are a great stain on his character. No. That's not what the people of God in heaven say. That's not what the redeemed say. The redeemed find in God's justice something for which God is glorified for. Something of amazement. Something that causes us to worship. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And, he, and they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up again forever and ever, the awful reality of an eternal hell. And what, the, and what do the redeemed in heaven say? Oh, isn't that a horrible... No. They worship God. 
If you go back to the passage, we, ref- we referenced this last week, to the passage in Isaiah chapter 66, uh, the closing verses of, the, of, that, of, that, of that prophecy, verses 25 and 26, in a sense, I don't think I brought this out last week, but when our Lord Jesus Christ said, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, in a sense, he's preaching from Isaiah 66, verses 25 and 26. He's picking up on that theme. Verse 26 speaks of the, the fire, that, uh, the worm never dying, and the fire which is, not, uh, which is not quenched. Verse 25 says they will come and worship God. So their realization of eternal wrath on sin is part and parcel of the worship of the church of Jesus Christ, the worship of the redeemed. Verse 4, And the elders and the 24 beasts fell down and worshiped. You see, God is not ashamed. It's not a blemish on God's character. The four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, ye servants, and ye that fear him, both great and small. And as I heard the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. There's nothing but joy here now on the people, on the part of the people of God. Now don't get me wrong. We have to expand this out. It isn't just about judgment. But judgment is included in this. And what you're seeing here is this, this crescendo building to the ultimate victory of God. And the victory of God is brought about through the Lord Jesus Christ. This 19th chapter, again, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ victoriously over, uh, uh, I'm sorry, conquering his enemies. But before that, what do we see here? Verse, uh, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Now notice, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the wife and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen and clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Oh, so much to say here. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. What I want you to see here is, this, is that there is this coming event, this marriage supper of the Lamb, which I believe in. And again, not, I, I, I hate to say it this way. I'm not alone in this. And many believe that what we see in this marriage supper is a consummating event to the Lord's Supper. That the Lord's Supper shall find its fulfillment in that great marriage feast of the Bride of Christ with Christ Himself. It's a glorious time. It's a glorious theme. And what I want you to see here when we take a look at this idea is that there are many things that cause the individual Christian to rejoice uh, concerning all this. Number one, concerning this marriage supper of the feast, what I want you to see and understand is that it is affirmed for us in the most emphatic way. Did you see that there in verse 9? And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. How do you know that this marriage supper of the feast will come to pass? Jesus pledged it to you in these symbols. How do you know that that day will be a day of joy and gladness? We see it here in the passage of Scripture in front of us. Matter of fact, I think it's uh, uh, there in... um, in verse uh, 7, look at verse 7. Let us, uh, let us be glad and rejoice and give on. How do you know there will be a day of gladness and rejoicing? Jesus pledged it to you on the table. How do you know there will be a, a time of, of great blessing for all those who participate? Verse 9, again, I write on, uh, he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called. How do you know that this will be the case? Jesus pledged it to you in the table. It's over and over again. I think of the fact that this great table, this great, this, great, uh, this great marriage feast, oh, the invitation that goes out, it goes far and wide. It goes to the small and to the great. 
It goes to, uh, again, uh, north, south, east, west. It transcends cultures, borders, time. It is the great call of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the great call in one, in one sense we can say. It is the echo of Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. This is God calling. And how do we know that this feast shall come, this marriage shall come? Jesus pledged it to us here in the table. Here we see again, verse 5, and a, and a voice, uh, verse 5 of chapter 19, and a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Oh, aren't you glad that this is the, how the invitation goes out? It's not only to the significant, it's not only to the inner circle, it's to all small and great. We read of, the, we read of that passage here in Matthew 22, the, the great invitation. Oh, the wretchedness of those who refuse this invitation. Don't be one of those who refuse this invitation. Come to this table, you see. Come in faith believing. Come in faith looking back on what Christ has accomplished for you. Come in faith looking forward to what Christ will do for you. Oh, you see this, this table, this pledge. Well, here it's, in, it's interesting that when we uh, take a look at the, at, the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and we see again it's something as a, as a culminating point in, in what we understand the Lord's Supper to be because of the Lord's Supper forward look. What we see is this. Look there in, in Revelation 19. What we find are the redeemed people of God gathered together as one body. Look around you today. These are the redeemed people of God in this place. And as in heaven, you see no division. You see no, uh, no, no discord. As you, you see uh, no, uh, no hostility one toward another. Here we are gathered as the people of Christ with genuine love in our hearts one for another. Yes, I implore you with genuine love for one another. I call you again. If there are, if there are hostilities, do away with them. I'm not aware of any that there are. But if there are, do away with them. Repent before God and go to your brother and sister. And say, God, forgive me. May you forgive me for, for, for my attitude that I've harbored against you. Look, at, look again. Look at heaven there. No division. The people of God worshiping and rejoicing. The people of God having again, having again uh, in the presence of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that is pictured for us symbolically. And so in that day, in that great consummating feast, the Lord Jesus Christ will be with his church and his church will be without division. His church will be without discord. His church will be in that harmony that he has purchased for them and that he calls them to. And I would say to you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, let us come to the table in the same way. Could our participation in the table this morning be a forecast of that great marriage feast? I'm convinced that's what, God, that's what our Lord Jesus Christ intends it to be. Can we say it this way? That in these four walls this morning, something of the joy of heaven will be experienced in our participation around the table. And so my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I call you to this, to this holy table. This table, I, I never got to this point now that I think of it. This table, it has probably at least three points of focus. It looks back on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It looks forward to his glorious return into the marriage supper, but it also looks at our common fellowship that we have one with another. We are here as one body in Christ. It is common blood that joins us. And I don't think it's type A, type B, type this, type A. It's the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat>